Hi everyone and welcome to the Spencer Lodge podcast in partnership with Najahi Events, more about them later. I do my best to bring to you interesting people that have got stories that touch either our hearts or inspire us or motivate us into different aspects of our lives. Today's guest is no different, so please listen up to this man who's been on quite a journey. His, his name is Caleb Dahlgren. Three years ago, at the age of just 20 years old, Caleb was involved in a terrible road accident in Saskatchewan, Canada, whilst on the way to an ice hockey playoff game. Caleb was the assistant captain for the Humboldt Broncos junior ice hockey team. He boarded the bus and headed on what was supposed to be an exciting journey with his teammates. But sadly, that wasn't the case. The bus carrying the team collided with a truck and tragedy struck. 16 people were killed and 13 people were injured in this deadly crash. Caleb was one of the survivors. He woke up in hospital, restricted by breathing tubes and a neck brace. At the time, he had no recollection of what happened. He thought that he must have been injured whilst playing the game, but the collision had left him with a fractured and punctured skull. This horrific accident received overwhelming support from all over the world, with more than 80 countries pledging millions of dollars to families whose relatives had been directly involved in the accident. Caleb has bravely documented his journey from the accident to recovery in his book called Crossroads. And before I say too much, let's welcome Caleb to the show. Well, Caleb, thank you so much for coming to join us on the show this afternoon here in Dubai. I know it's probably early in the morning over there in Canada, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's 9 a.m. here, but uh, enjoying it. <laughs> so we're here today to talk about ice hockey, and that's a sport that in this part of the world isn't probably as popular as it is in Canada, where you're from. Um, we don't have many ice rinks, and we don't have any cold weather ever, and so we don't get the chance to engage in that. But Ice hockey is a, a very fast-paced sport and a sport that I would argue is uh, where, you know, it, de it decides the men from the boys. Would you agree? I agree. Yeah, it's definitely a tough and rough sport too. You have to be physically fit and you also have to be mentally tough too to take the hits and the slashes and continue moving forward. So even blocking shots hurts, but uh, you just do it for the team. Now, you've been through something that is unimaginable to many people and after reading and learning and watching the countless videos and content about your story I was really just really drawn by the fact that what you'd been through number one but how you then managed to handle what what had happened to you and how your family coped with what happened to you as well along the way and then your process of recovering from that psychologically yourself and it, it really moved me, the fact that you've even taken time now to go and write a book and, and, and talk about your journey as well. But for the people that, that don't know you and haven't heard the story, why don't we just take it from the top? If you can give me uh, or our audience an understanding of what happened, how it happened, and um, uh, how long ago it happened to. April 6, 2018 was the day my life changed forever. And it was just another normal day. And that's the thing that I can't stress enough was that it was just a normal day. We were... In Humboldt, I was in Humboldt, Saskatchewan for the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League playoffs. I was playing against Nippon Hawks. We were down in the series three to one, so it was tough. But we were, knew we had the opportunity to come back and win the series. 
we knew we weren't down and out. So on a typical game day, we usually have a pregame skate and brunch, and that's what happened that day. And then my roommates and I went back to our billet's house, went for a little pregame nap. After that, got up, showered, put on our tracksuits, and headed out the door. And uh, then after that, we went to the rink and had a little team meeting, and then packed our bags and loaded the bus. Sat in my normal seat, uh, row 12, aisle seat, and the rest is pretty much history, I guess. We ended up uh, driving to Nipawin, and guys on the bus were laughing around, joking, playing cards. Um, some guys were listening to music. Just a normal bus trip. And I think the coolest thing about the bus is that's where some of the best memories are. And that's like where your happy space is. And you feel safe, you feel secure, and it's always a fun time. And so that was what it was that trip too. I was listening to music and I'd also text my parents a bit. And then I ended up having a pregame meal. And after that, I put on my suit and we were about half an hour out and sat back down to my seat. And the guys in front of me uh, were talking and stuff. So I put on my headphones a bit, listened to some music. Uh, but there's guys beside me changing as well. And after the guys in front of me started laughing, I was like, okay, I need to fix it up here. I need to get into my game zone. We were about half an hour out and I wanted to focus. Um, so what I do is usually put my head down and I visualize. So I close my eyes and visualize what I'm going to do on the ice. And uh, it was just another ritual, normal day. It was just what you would do on any typical game day. Then after I put my headphones in, I, I press play and put my head down, close my eyes because I was visualizing. And then the, everything else went black. And that was the last thing I remember. And I woke up in the hospital four and a half days later. And what had happened was a semi went through a stop sign and our bus T-bone collided into the semi. We lost 16 people who I consider to be family. And then 13 others survived with various injuries, mental, physical, emotional injuries. So let's just, let's just picture this for a second. We've got uh, a coach full of you guys on. A truck goes straight into the side of the coach as you're traveling down the highway, correct? Uh, we run into this truck. So we, we T-bone the truck. You we had the right-of-way on the highway, and the truck went through the stop sign, and we couldn't slow down in time to make the impact, and so we hit the truck going okay. through. So you went straight onto the side of the truck. Yeah. And 16 people died. Mm -hmm. And 16 people you'd known for a long time were part of your, your gang, your group, your team, your family. It's, it's tough enough to imagine or to experience one person dying, let alone that many people. Mm -hmm. when, you, when you woke up in hospital, did you, did you know where you were? I know you said you blacked out, but do you, did you know why you were there? Did you realize why you were there or was it all news to you? No, it was all news to me. So when I woke up in the hospital, I was really, really confused, and I was in a state called post-traumatic amnesia. So on the crash scene, I guess my first responder said I was walking around and helping people. However, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. The One of the big things was that I was wearing a wool coat, and then at the time when he came to me on the scene, I didn't have my wool coat on. So I must have given it to somebody because it wouldn't have just came off randomly. It was like done up too. When the first responder came and saw me, he's like, um, are you okay? Like what hurts? And I said, my neck and my back. And he's like, okay, stay still. Don't move. I'll get you on a stretcher. And I said, no, 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 help others. He's like, no, I'll get you on a stretcher. Stay there. So he came back and got me on a stretcher. And then as he loaded me into the ambulance, I said, thank you. Make sure you help others. That was, he said, he'll never forget that. So just the fact that I was 
there on the scene and thanked him. He was really grateful for that. But in these four and a half days, I was talking coherent and I was like responding to people and having conversation. But I had this flat affect on my face where it was just like my eyes were shut. And I was just like, looked like I was sleep talking if in that kind of sense. In post-traumatic amnesia, you are able, it's kind of, lack of a better term, a blackout, where you are moving around, you're conversing with people, but you just don't remember it. In those four and a half days, my parents told me about the crash twice. When I woke up and looked around, I had no idea what happened. I uh, looked around and I thought I was dreaming. So I tried closing my eyes again to think like, okay, it was just a bad dream, whatever. And then I realized that as I had something around my neck and it was a neck brace. And I looked at my parents like, am I dreaming? And they looked back and they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, maybe I'm not dreaming, I guess. I don't know. And then I said, how was our game last night? Or how did our game go? Not even last night, how did our game go? And they're like, what game? I was like, your hockey game. And then in my head, I was thinking, well, I have a broken neck. Obviously, I have a neck brace on, so something happened to my neck. I must have got checked from behind in the game. I was like, well, I, obviously, our team played still. Like, I'm just injured. I must have played the game, got injured, and now I'm in the hospital because of it. Just trying to make sense of everything. Um, and then my parents were still, like, super confused, and they were weeping and crying. And I was like, what's going on? Like, well, how, how did our game go? They're like, there was no game. I was like, then what happened? They said, there was a bus crash. I was like, a bus crash? So that was when the reality really kicked in. They said, yeah, Dana passed away. And I was like, Dana, who was our trainer, or I guess our athletic therapist at the time, um, passed away. And that made it 16 who passed away at the time. And I had no idea about anybody else. That was the hard part for me was coming to grips with it. I didn't believe him. I said, pass me my phone. So they passed me a phone that did not look like my phone whatsoever. It was a new iPhone. And I was like, well, this isn't my phone. I'm like, yeah, it is. Swipe up. So then I swiped up and sure enough, it opened. And I said, hey, I'm going on Twitter. I need to see if this is real. I hit Twitter. And then the first thing I saw was prayers for Humboldt, Humboldt strong, um, sticks out for Humboldt and or sticks out for the Broncos too. And I was like, holy, this is real. And then shortly after, about nine and two minutes, I had to go downstairs for my physio appointment. I didn't even know my injuries at all. I didn't know who was here, who wasn't. Um, it was just kind of sitting in that this had happened. This is my reality now. There's, first of all, tell me what injuries you experienced. Mm -hmm. So what I had was a fractured skull, a puncture wound to my skull. So I had fractured on this side, a puncture wound, and then I had a scalp degloving. So this whole side of my head was shaved right off. It looked like a road rash, a hardcore road rash from like probably here to, well, here down, all road rash. I had a severe traumatic brain injury. I also had five broken vertebrae in my neck, four broken vertebrae in my back, a blood clot in my left arm, a blood clot in my right eardrum, um, and muscle ligament and nerve damage in my neck and my back too. And so with my brain injury, at the time we didn't know it was that serious. We thought like obviously I had a brain injury. Um, my parents kind of just found out four and a half days later that I don't remember anything that they were telling me and who came visited. I don't remember honestly a thing. And so they found that difficult to explain, but they knew I was okay. Like I was still talking to people. Um, I knew where my friends were. One of my friends actually came back from a trip from Mexico. And I literally asked him, he walked in the door, how is Mexico? My parents were like, how did you know he was in Mexico? And I was like, well, I texted him before he went. And so like, obviously I was still with it. Um, so anyways, my doctor called my parents and he's like, I'm so, so sorry for what happened. 
And my dad answered the phone. He's like, yeah, thank you very much. We appreciate it. We know it's difficult. Um, it's tough times right now, but we'll be making it through it. And he's like, I know. I'm so, so sorry, but I'm sorry about Caleb. I know he'll never be the same. And then my dad was like, yeah, like he probably won't be, but he's doing really well right now. And he's able to be talking with us and he's, he's doing okay. And then my daughter's like, no, no, like, I know he doesn't remember you guys. I know he doesn't remember anything or his name. Like, I'm so sorry. My dad was kind of like confused there. He's like, what do you mean? He doesn't remember his name. Like, he's been talking to us. He was just talking to us two minutes ago. And he was like, no, it's not possible. I looked at his MRI image of his brain and there's no way possibly he could be talking to you guys. And my dad was like, well, he is. Like, you can come see for yourself. He's like, this is not possible. So he ended up coming after work and when he walked in, I said, hi, Dr. Likos, how's it going? And he ended up crawling to the floor and started crying. He said, this, this can't be possible. He said, based on my image, I should be in a vegetative state, not remember my name or how to walk or how to talk. So my MRI image for my brain was one thing. And then the way that I was, was another. And um, I was, he called me a miracle right there and said, this is an absolute miracle. Well, that, that leads me to my next question about luck and guilt. In the position that you're in, there, depending on which way you think about it, you either have got great luck and you're extremely lucky because you survived, or you would feel extremely guilty because you survived. How did you, how did you cope with those types of emotions? Yeah, so on that first night when I found out about the crash, it would have been April 11th, the big thing for me was that I had such a whirlwind, so I found out went to physio, came back, had visitors on end. So I really didn't relax until late at night. And late at night, I was going through my phone again. I wanted to see, and it was it was real because I looked through Instagram at that time then. And that was like when I really saw all the pictures and all the memorials and that kind of thing. And that was pretty difficult for me because I was sitting in my hospital bed and there's two others of us in the room that were on the bus and uh, two other survivors. And I looked across the room and I was just like, how is this even possible? And then I thought like, why am I still here when the person beside me passed away, the person behind me passed away? Um, it doesn't make sense. So I ended up trying to text my roommate, Stephen Wack, and um, I went to send a message. I had it all typed out and I was going to hit send just to realize that he wasn't here. He wasn't going to receive the text. And that was when it really hit me even harder. It was like, this can't, this doesn't make sense. Like he was sitting behind me. Like, how does this make sense? Um, and that was, that was definitely when I started to feel a bit guilty, I'd say. It was hard not to. I think that if you're one of the 13 survivors out of that 16 who pass away, and literally it's harder, I think, because it makes sense if everyone in front of the bus passed away. It makes sense because of collision, impact, it makes that's more logical. But when you have people who are behind you and beside you that passed away, it just really doesn't have any rhyme or reason. And so I thought about it more. And I guess that day we found that I had a 5C on the side of my left eye. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, I saw on the video, um, yeah. Yeah, so 5C, like just abbreviated into my left eye. And I was sitting in row 12. And so obviously I would have flew forward when we had the impact. So I would have flew up seven rows and probably hit my head. The idea is hit my right side of my head on something, cracked my skull open, got a puncture wound. And then I hit my left side of my head and got 5C imprinted into a seat or something above the seat. Um, and so that made, I was able to make logical sense in my situation. 
but I wasn't able to make logical sense of other situations. And um, after a couple of days, I just stopped asking the why questions and realized that I'll never get an answer for those. So I was able to do that and I wanted to live my life for those who weren't here. So as I was sitting in that bed, I went through on social media and all my old photos and memories I had of them. And it was really special to look through that. But then I thought I need to live big for those who aren't here. I need to live my life to the fullest for those that aren't able to and just enjoy life to the fullest because if I wasn't here, what would I want the others to do? And I think that's a big thing that really helped me was my mindset and my perception around it. You were extremely lucky because you survived, but other people deal with grief. Obviously, all of the other families that lost loved ones deal with grief. And sometimes that that grief can never never really go away it stays there uh, there forever and obviously there's people all over the world that that struggle to lose family members to lose 16 um is is huge and i suppose that you've had to go to 16 funerals and to be engaged with 16 families trying to cope with that kind of stuff do you <clears throat> have any advice that you could give to people that might be going through the loss of a friend, a family member. Well, you know, we've had a huge increase in the suicide rate of young people over the course of the last year. It's the number two killer for teenagers in the world. <coughs> you have people that have died because of the coronavirus and lost loved ones. How, how, do, how, does, how do you handle grief? And how, and how if, you, if I was asking you and I was going through that right now, what words of comfort would you give me? Yeah, I'd say focus on the things that you can control. And in life, we're faced with so many situations that are out of our control. Even the crash itself and the tragedy was really out of our control. Um, I couldn't control a semi-driver. I couldn't control who my injuries, who was here, who wasn't here. I couldn't even control, um, even if I told the bus driver to slow down earlier. Like it, there was nothing that was in my control at that time and to focus on things that I can control. So I can control my reaction to that situation, how I want to persevere through it, my how I want to treat others, my work ethic, my ability to bounce back and be resilient. I can control my perspective around the situation and how I want to honor those who aren't here and how I want to live my life moving forward. And I think that was the big thing for me was focus on those things I can control and making the small increments every single day to find the positive. So on the first day, for me, one of the positives I found was I was breathing. The second day was that I had support. I had so many support staff there in the hospital room with me. The third was I was able to get up and walk. Just little small positive things that I could make the, like try to find the positive in the day. And I think as we focus in life, we get so caught up in the daily activities that we really forget to be grateful for what we have around us. And for me, that was one of the big things was just being grateful for what I had. And then even grateful for the opportunity of knowing the person too. There's 8 billion people in this world. And the fact that I connect with 16 people who I was able to consider family is pretty special in my eyes. And I think the fact that they were in my life for the time that they were, I was able to take something away from them and carry moving forward with them was another big piece. So I'd say there's a big approach to it. And even, like I said, putting myself in their shoes. Like if I wasn't here, what would I want the survivors to do and how would I want them to live? I would like them to be happy. I'd love them to follow their dreams or passions to just make the most of the life that they have. And so I really took that into account for myself 
and I want to do that moving forward. So cel celebrate the fact that you had the opportunity to have them in your life for the period you did rather than mourn the loss of um, them not being there. Do you think people get great comfort from talking um, to other people that have been in similar situations? Did you find comfort in all talking together and spending time and sharing memories? Yeah, I'd say that definitely helped a bit. I think for me, what I really found valuable was actually just talking to people like family and friends about it too. For me, I, I heal pretty different, I'd say. I'm more of a talkative person. I like to be open and honest and vulnerable with my emotions. And in this time frame, I found that everyone heals differently too. And there is no linear path to healing. And that was one of the big things was, um, for me, was actually just talking about and being open. And some people didn't want to talk about and be open about it. And that was fine too. So that was a big thing that I wanted to do was to be open, vulnerable, and honest about my feelings and emotions at all times. And I think that comes with great strength too. I used to equate strength to physical strength, but I believe there's so much strength in being vulnerable and open and honest with yourself and having the courage to speak up when things aren't really doing well for you. Mm. And so that's what I did. And I found that to be great healing in this journey too. You paid a, a great tribute with a stunning piece of artwork that you put onto your arm to remember the guys that passed away plus the guys that survived as well and obviously there's various situations the survivors are in um that tattoo that you put on your arm is is really quite significant isn't it we'll show a clip of it so people can see it you don't have to worry about pulling your sleeve up right now but to, to, how long did it take to come up with the design for that tattoo was it because that's quite a masterpiece so how long did it take you to put it together and uh, was it painful getting it done <laughs> Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I designed it all myself too. And that was a big thing was I wanted something super meaningful, but I didn't want something to say Humboldt on it or humble Broncos or in memory of, I wanted it to be something scenic. And after the crash, I found a nice spot by the Saskatoon river at Broadway bridge. And so I lived in Saskatoon growing up, which is an hour away from Humboldt. And I just to give the viewers an idea where I was and it has a nice river rowing, like going through the city, and it's actually a really beautiful spot. And I go there just to get away from everything. I couldn't even walk around in Saskatoon without being stopped on the street. Um, I'd go, I had once, actually, first time I went to the mall, I took a step out um, into the mall, I guess, took a step into the mall, had a person stop me there, and we started talking, and they offered their condolences and all that, which is super nice. And then I took a step inside the mall, and another person stopped, started talking with me, and the lineup started to form behind the person for people who wanted to talk to me as I was inside this mall. So there's a lot of the pressures of people like wanting to say how they're sorry. And um, it truly meant a lot to have that support. I, I honestly couldn't thank them enough for that. But at the time, I did want to just have my own time for myself and kind of not be in my house, but not be in a mall, like just outside somewhere. So I found comfort in this spot by the Broadway Bridge and uh, it's beautiful, and I'd be there in the evenings, and I'd, I'd see the birds fly away, and I'd also would see stars at night shining above, and for me, that was something like really symbolic in my eyes, and uh, my roommate, Stephen Wack, and I, at the start of the year, went out to look at the stars, and we were both a little bit of astronomy nerds, and that's okay, um, <laughs> but uh, I love I love nature, I love sunsets, and I absolutely love uh, looking at the stars, too, so... For me, that was a big thing that I wanted to include was that those who weren't here for the 16, that they were stars in my life. 
and that in the dark times, like as in night, they'll shine bright on me. And I think that was one of the cool parts about the tattoo is it being so symbolic that people could just think, oh, look, it's a nice portrait, um, nice scenery, but really it actually has tons of meaning. And then the 13 birds flying in a V formation away um, from the dark into the light, into the sunset, and also into the light beams coming in where they're trying to find that positive in the, over the negative and the lightness in the dark. Um, and the cool thing about birds is that every one of them are leaders. They always switch positions. Everyone's different at the front. And I really like that aspect because we are all leaders in our own way. And we are all going on our different paths, but still will be a pack together um, by this tragedy. And then the ice on the river was to signify the bond that we shared through hockey. Um, and stick and puck was there too for that. It's really a symbolic tattoo. And I go into great detail in chapter 16 of my book with it. And it really means a lot to me, I think. And I wanted to honor them in some capacity. And I had to get a tattoo for my diabetes after the crash because I didn't have anything saying I was type 1 diabetic. And it could have been fatal if I wasn't in a good blood sugar state. But um, after that, I thought if I get a tattoo on my forearm for my diabetes, I might as well get one for the Broncos. And so that's how I'm going to honor them. Beautiful. Now, uh, shameless plug time. Tell me about this book that you wrote, uh, why you wrote it, and um, and what a journey it was. Because I've written a book myself, and it's one of the most difficult things I've ever done. You know, it's a lot of hard work that goes into it to get it right. It's almost a labor of love. So what's the book about, and what prompted you to write it? Well, thank you. So the book is about hope, family, and resilience. And it captures my life from childhood up until... August 2019. The whole idea was just because I really wanted to help other people. And I found that through sharing my story, I was able to help others. And it didn't really hit me until I first did share my story. And a person came up to me and said, you should write a book. And I started laughing at the person because there's no way I'm going to write a book. I don't want to write a book. I'm a student athlete. I have a brain injury. I'm in five courses right now. Like, there's just so much going on in my life. I'm volunteering with four different organizations outside of my school. And inside my school, I'm doing four different volunteering situations too. It's just no time. Um, and I really didn't know if I was ready either. I didn't know if I was ready to put my thoughts on paper and really lay it all out there and be vulnerable with not just people close to me, but with the world. And so that was the hard part for me was debating that. And also if the families were ready too. I wanted to respect the families, but I also want to respect my healing journey too. Um, so there's a lot of different factors that played into it. So... Um, I talked to Haley Wickenheiser, who's a Canadian hockey icon in Canada, who I grew close with after the crash. And um, she was amazing. And she said, yeah, like your story could truly help others. You should really do it. Um, and I still really didn't think it could. So I was sitting in class one day, and my professor said, if you want to change the world, it starts with you. And that was when it really hit me. And my whole life, I have tried to give back. I've tried to help others. And I would love to hopefully make an impact on this world, a positive one. And I feel like my story can do that. So it chronicles some of the difficult challenges I've been through in life with type 1 diabetes, almost losing my dad, losing my personal trainer, and losing my teammate, and obviously the crash and how I wanted to proceed moving forward and have my perception kind of come through of my healing journey too. And even afterwards with my traumatic brain injury and how I've been able to handle the situation I've been in and um, make the most of it. So it uh, has my heart and soul in it for sure. And it really does mean a lot to me to have an opportunity to share my story. Okay. Well, we'll make sure there's a link. Can people get it on Amazon as well? They can get hold of it? Yep. They can get it 
on Amazon. Um, I think, yeah, Amazon probably is the best for you guys. Okay. So we'll make sure that the link's on the, on the episodes of the show. So guys, if you're listening to this right now, get a copy of Crossroads when you can. Okay. Um, I know that you've uh, just announced just today that you're retiring from hockey um and after reading about that announcement and obviously the risks of playing such a, a tough and rough sport after having an injury it, you know any parent would say what do you mean you're going back on the ice you've got a brain injury that's not happening all right get wind yeah. your neck in get out of there and go and learn something new so yeah. when, when you went back to play hockey again after after the you healed um did you realize quickly that it wasn't going to be a long-term thing or was it a gradual process before you were wanting to announce that you were going to retire? Yeah, no, great question. For me, one of the big things was that after the crash, when I was going through all these testing with my brain, I was like breaking records on these tests. It wasn't even like I was failing them or not doing well. I was breaking records. So at the time is weird because they say I should be this way based on the image but I'm not, I'm way past that. I'm not, I'm able to remember my name. I'm able to be articulate. I'm able to talk, walk, talk to people. I have all my memory before the crash. Um, literally my whole entire life. I still remember other than those four and a half days. So I didn't know for sure if it was actually my right image, but I went with it cause you never know. Um, so I kept doing more tests and I did a test. It's called the impact test and it's for memory processing, sensory, um, reaction time and I did the test in 2017 with the Humble Broncos and so I did redid it in winter of 2018 and I scored higher after my brain injury in winter 2018 and so that was another thing for me I was like this is so weird because this is like one of the concussion tests that they use for concussions and to diagnose if you have a concussion or not so I found it really weird that I was doing this well and in school like the doctors so I went to the doctor it would have been in August of 2018 before I was going to go to school in Toronto, which is about, I'd say a three and a half hour plane ride away from Saskatoon or even more, maybe four and a half, um, from Saskatoon and at least 3000 kilometers away. Um, so it was going to be a jump and being from Saskatoon of city of 300,000 to go in Toronto, which is like 8 million people. Uh, it's a pretty big jump. And the doctor's like, if you go there, I think you're going to fail in school. I think you're going to have a brilliant, healthy life. You're not going to enjoy your life. You're going to go down a dark path and get into addictions. He's like, I really don't think it's a good spot for you. And I was like, okay, well, I, I disagree, but um, I think I'll do well there and succeed. He's like, no, you won't. Like, I'd recommend you stay home, do one course online, uh, get your feet wet that way in university, and uh, just really take it easy. And I said, okay, thank you for that. Um, he was already kind of, he was challenging my perception too. Patronizing. Because, <laughs> Thank you. Well, he was like, yeah, yeah. He was like challenging my perception a bit about how I have healed from this and how I moved forward from grief. And he thought I was just telling him what I, he wanted to hear, but it really was the way that I've healed from this journey. And I, I didn't really get the good vibe or he never really asked about me what I was like beforehand either. It was more just right now and focusing on the now where beforehand I was the exact same way. I lived life to the fullest. I was happy-go-lucky, always positive, almost too positive, where people are like, why are you so positive? But that was the way I was, and that's how I'm wired. And so for him, he couldn't get over that. And he thought that's put on some facade and um, all of this. And so anyways, I went to York, 
And when I was there, I was excelling in school. I was doing really well. I ended my first semester with like a 90 average. And I totally took a full course load too. Um, and was doing extremely well. I had to put in a lot of work because I had a slowed reading ability. That was one of my deficits from my brain injury was that my reading was slowed. But I was doing extremely well. On the ice, I was practicing, working out with the team, doing really great in that. I was even beating guys in races. I felt great with my processing speed too of like how fast the game is and adjusting to that speed. And so I was like, okay, maybe this test actually isn't my brain. Like maybe the scan isn't my brain and they're using somebody else's scan. They mixed it up because I'm feeling so good. So I end up going to see Dr. Charles Tatter, um, who's a neurologist, one of the top ones in the world in sport. And when I saw him, we were looking at my old image, so the one in 2018, and he threw me through all these tests. And these were like really difficult tests and I ended up doing extremely well. And as he's writing down stuff, he's like shaking his head and he looks like in disbelief, literally in disbelief. And he's like, look, if I didn't see your image, I think you'd be playing hockey right now. And he's like, you should be playing hockey. But if I, now I see your image and I see where you're at, it just doesn't correlate. It doesn't make sense. I've never seen this before. So hearing that from a world-renowned neurologist really made me skeptical about my image. So like, okay, let's go get a new image. And if it's the same, it's the same. If not, it's not. So I went and got a new image about two weeks after that meeting with Dr. Charles Tatter. And uh, the image came back and the MRI was the exact same. So that was when it really hit me about how severe my brain injury was, how fortunate I was to be in this position I was. And that's when I took a step back from hockey and reevaluated my life. I spent the full year trying to get back into the game. But then after hearing that and seeing that, there was no point in risking it. And a good way he explained it was like, we have a bubble with our brain. And I'm in this miracle bubble, they call it. And in the bubble, it can pop, but it can still flow throughout the air and still be okay but depending on the risk, if it hits something, it could pop and burst. And so if I did, did hit my head again, I could go back into the state where I should have been in, where I wouldn't remember my name or how to walk or how to talk. So the risk reward is definitely not worth it. And there's so much more life than sport too. I want a family. I want to travel. I want to come to Dubai. Um, I, want to, I want to enjoy life to the fullest and make the most of it. Time on earth can go by fast and you can leave in an instant. So I really want to make the most of my time and be my best self. Hey, and even if you wanted to take up sport, you could always do curling, couldn't you? I could. I could do bowling, <laughs> curling, golf. There's lots of sports. Curling's fun too. It's a Canadian sport. Absolutely love it. <laughs> and so career-wise, your future, chiropractor? Yes, I love to be a chiropractor. Um, before the crash, that was one of the big things that I loved and I was always interested in. And then after the crash, even more so too. I really enjoyed going to chiropractor and I always felt like it helped me the most, especially with my vertebrae injuries I had in my cervical and thoracic spine. That was really pivotal for my healing was chiropractic. And I just want to help as many people as I can. I'm a people person and giving back truly fuels my soul. So if I can help 30 plus people in one day feel better health, be healthier health wise, and mentally and emotionally why wouldn't i do that so yeah i, I think i think i think that's nonsense i think you've just been watching too many videos on tiktok and instagram of chiropractors cracking people's necks and backs <laughs> <laughs> and i've got I mean, no <laughs> yeah, I, I actually really enjoy it though i think it's uh super beneficial and helps tons of people live mm. a healthier life and that's 
That's what I want. Look, I've had spinal fusion surgery myself, two operations, and so I, I'm acutely aware of um, how it feels to be in pain. You know, I was on morphine for nearly two years because of my operations, and Jeez. that that pain that I was in was agonizing. And so, uh, a good chiropractor is worth their weight in gold, and the ability that they have to heal. Um, and again, you you know, if you there's a guy in Australia called Dr. Ian, um, and you'll find him on YouTube and stuff, and and the the way he cures people is incredible the work he does and then there's obviously dr cody um on uh, uh tiktok as well and um yeah it's just fantastic seeing people getting so much relief from having their you know their spine or other joints aligned what's the name of the china there's a chinese guy as well isn't there that i don't you ever seen that chinese guy that makes the funny noises every time he does it. it's like huh, huh, huh. and uh, <laughs> i forget his name but um he's fantastic I do too. you know who i mean I know exactly i know who you mean for sure i can't remember his name either that's gonna bug me too oh yeah i know exactly though <laughs> hey look um it's really, it's really nice of you to come and spend some time talking to us today and sharing with the audience here in the Middle East about your journey. It's clearly been a very difficult one for you personally, emotionally, and I'm sure for your family too. Um, you're, a, you're a young guy with your whole life ahead of you. Just before we finish, you said you'd like to come to Dubai. Okay. 100%. Yeah. Well, well, if you do come to Dubai, the camel ride is on me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I said at the start, just so everyone, I said one of my bucket lists is to come to Dubai. I love, I actually love it. I always look at photos, not going to lie. Um, I think it's so beautiful there. And I want to go to the desert and ride a camel. That's just on my bucket list. Um, and so that's awesome. Thank you so much. I'd love to meet up too. I think it'd be great to actually know someone in Dubai. So Man, you, you are very, very welcome. If you do come, genuinely, you are very welcome. We'll show you a good time if you come here. Caleb, I, I really appreciate you taking your time and sharing your story and the tragedy that went, you went through and the way that you've recovered. And I'm, I'm so glad that you've taken the time to put a book together. Uh, and, I, and I urge everyone that's listening to this now, go read the book, do me a favor, tell your friends about it as well, because maybe it'll give you some hope through some darker times too. But for now, Caleb, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been great talking to you. For many of us, losing one family member or even a family friend is devastating enough. But to lose 16 friends in one go must be more devastating than you can imagine. Caleb has survived, and so he can consider himself lucky. But as he said on the interview just then, he also has to deal with the guilt of being a survivor too. Please do me a favor and go and check out his book. The link is here. Please do me a favor, please, and go and get that book. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys. 
and people like this and they bring them in and they run events and from those events we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that they launched the Najahi tribe recently where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, <laughs> hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, and you're listening to this on iTunes, then do me a favor and leave us a five-star rating. If you're listening to it on any other podcast app, then please leave us a follow um, or leave some comments because the more people that hear about this podcast, the more get to share these types of experiences with you.